Okay. So if you guys remember, not to overdo the, the review, but if you remember, it was a couple months ago we started looking at our gospel language. And I ran into something in the course of doing that, which was called uh, the meta narrative or the underlying story behind what causes us to interpret things the way we interpret them. And I realized uh, that the power of the meta narrative is you don't usually question it. It just, it's stuff you've accumulated and, and you've told a story uh, and it's turned into story form and you don't really challenge it, but it, it, it blinds you to certain scriptures. It makes other ones stand out and all this kind of stuff. So anyhow, uh, we're going to look at telling the good news, our meta narrative foundation. And as sort of the last step, at least in this part of the series, we're going to look at what it means to be saved, what salvation is in the scripture and so on. So what does it mean to be saved? How does the gospel save? And how do we prepare to know and share that story? We okay out there, Dan? Okay. So let's review these things. Now, these are on the paper for you. They're actually on the back, and then the scriptures associated with them are in the first couple of pages. So I want to review the gospel story from this idea of metanarrative. But what I want to point out to you is this is not something that I'm trying to say, okay, this is what our meta-narrative is going to be. If you go to Joyland, this is what you're going to... No, no, that's not it. You and I have permission, we even have a sense of responsibility, to draw from the Scripture whatever it can teach, whatever it can say, and to apply it to the areas of our life. And what we're trying to do is come up with the gospel. And we made some comparisons, if you'll remember, with some other ministries and some other ministry scriptural sets and statement of beliefs about the gospel. And some of them pointed in one direction, some pointed in another, some started. Uh, one of the sort of common things that's going on is it got started um, with, uh, 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 the story started with sin in a lot of the gospel narratives. And so we decided, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a better place to start. Let's look and see. I uh, added a couple of thoughts to this uh, list from last week, and I had some conversations with a couple other people, and Interestingly, uh, one of the scriptures that um, people had said they thought was missing was one that I did too, so I put it in there. So these are only elements of a summary from the scriptures that inform sort of a full story gospel. And what I mean by that, and, and I will admit that that stirs up some old thoughts. When I made my jump from being a Southern Baptist to being an Assemblies of God person, one of the things that characterized that was the phrase, the full gospel. And what we meant in Assemblies of God was that we now included the Holy Spirit and the baptism in the Holy Spirit in the story of the gospel. Sadly, I would say that my belief in the full gospel as an Assemblies of God student and pastor wasn't really a whole lot fuller <laughs> than it was before. And it was partly because some of the stuff we looked at early when we were looking at the gospel, which is what role does the Father's heart and perspective play in the gospel. In the, in the old form of the gospel that I grew up with, the father was sort of a reaction. He was always in a reactive mode to that. But uh, anyway, so this is, this is uh, a change. But I want to emphasize, you guys have the freedom to think through these things and to figure out what you think you know, needs to be here. And also you have the freedom to use any of this or not use it, or simplify it. I don't think you could make it more complex. I, I sort of own the 
own, own the tendency to do that. So it's a little six-step process. The first one is God chose our created purpose and destiny. And the way this is written out is these, these are not scripture, obviously. These are our summary statements. The scripture is on the paper that you got there. But uh, these are from, taken from a certain passage of scripture. And that's what that means at the bottom. So before God created the cosmos, he seeing himself as our father, predestined us to adoption as sons in Jesus, his only begotten son from all eternity. Having you as a son is Father God's forever desire and will. Okay, so that's like the summary statement that we pulled out of Ephesians chapter 1. And you can you know, go back and look at the other scriptures that are on the other side and gives the whole thing. Kind of one of the key parts to that is that we're predestined to conform to his image, uh, the image of his son, and so on. So the second one on this first idea of God chose our creative purpose and destiny is that this Jesus with God eternally and God himself, and you can tell that that comes from the first chapter of John, right? Was who made and sustains every created thing. Okay? He came to us with the authority and union of the one who created us. Now, this is a truth that we didn't talk about in in, in the gospel as I grew up with it and crafted it and tried to evangelize with it. We didn't talk about the fact that Jesus was the creator. But the scripture is really plain about that. This is, you know, everything's made through him and not one thing is made without him. And in Colossians, he's the one not only who made it, but he's the one who upholds it by the word of his power. He's the one that's sustained in it and all that kind of stuff. So this begins to set a beginning for the gospel story that was very different than the one that, that I had. Okay? And maybe that you had. Because my gospel story mostly started at the fall. Or it started later in the fall just with the pronouncement that uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as if that were the fundamental destiny that we all had. Uh, Jesus, acting in perfect union with Father God, made man and woman in his image and likeness and declared that all he had made was very good. Then God rested. So this goes back. I've uh, rarely seen anything before chapter 3 of the fall included in the gospel framework that anybody put out. But it seems to me that this whole idea of what did God want? How did he go about initiating it through Jesus, creating mankind? What was the nature of mankind? Well, he said, very good. Very good. So there's something. Now, not everybody omitted all those things, because if you guys remember hearing any of Dan Muller's teaching, Dan, uh, I, I don't know who else has used it, but he certainly coined it among me hearing it. He talked about created value, that there was, a, there was a created value and a created identity that exists before a fallen identity and a fallen problem. And for sure, the, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talk about that before it gets into Genesis chapter 3. Now, we had a question come up last week about, well, this is too much. This is too much. Okay, I agree with that. I'm not trying to say this is a formula for you to share the gospel. What I'm trying to say is that these are thoughts that have been given words in conjunction with some of us doing it together and me doing it some and everything. These are thoughts that come out of the scripture and they could be super simplified. Um, like the first sentence there is that you could tell somebody, do you know that God was your father before he was your creator? That's only like, Seven words, or I didn't count them, but it's close. God was your father before he was your creator. Well, nine words. 
Samuel is a little extra wordy. But you see what I'm saying? So that represents, any of these could be this way. Uh, this idea of Jesus with God in himself, uh, Jesus who was and was with God, created everything, including you. And he upholds it. No, it could be simple like that. So that makes sense? So I'm not trying to suggest that this is what we're trying to spit out by rote, but that these thoughts, because remember, we talked about meta-narrative, right? We talked about the narrative behind, the story that, or the, the, the truths that take on a story form that govern what we can and can't see. And so what these are, I'm suggesting, is a possible illustration of, an example of, maybe even a worksheet of, of how to rewrite our meta-narrative and I personally think, for me, I want the gospel to include what the Father's heart was before the foundation of the world, because that leaves the room open for Jesus to be the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That leaves the room open that, uh, that, that sin didn't cause a disruption necessarily the way we normally talk about it, but that God took that into account in the very beginning and all that kind of stuff. So, All right, so the second thing, though, now on our point two, not point one, point two we're going to see what happened, darkness, sin, and that type of thing. And so from Genesis 3, 1 through 11 there, tragically, uh, man and woman believed the tempters lie about God and themselves, took the knowledge of good and evil they were not ready to handle into themselves and became ashamed of themselves and afraid of God and hid from Him. Now again, that's a, that's a lot of words to talk about that, and it could be simplified down into... Uh, um, Man and woman believed a lie. And that lie caused them to hide from God. It caused them to be ashamed of themselves. And that could be it. I mean, that could be the total. Uh, the next one is from just a little bit, uh, oh, it's from Romans. Yeah, this is, this, now we're finally getting up to some of the Romans uh, verses that are used all the time. Fear and death spread from Adam and Eve to all mankind. But the free gift from Father's heart of grace in Jesus was greater than the failure of Adam. In Adam's failure, all died. In Jesus' death and resurrection, all live. The point I'd like to, or the, the idea I want to point out with this particular summary from that particular passage of Scripture, and if you read the Scripture, you'll understand that it's very legitimate to say these things based on that Scripture. But the idea that, that one through one man's sin, uh, death entered the whole human race. That's not really a standalone idea. It's true. I'm not denying that it's true. It's something we need to think about. And it's something we need to acknowledge if we're going to understand redemption. Otherwise, what would there be to be redeemed from? But that's not a standalone truth. Not the way the Apostle Paul wrote it. The truth, the broader truth, is that through one man, sin entered the whole world, and that sin led to death, but that through the second Adam, life. And so you have this kind of situation, and there's a very strong comparison there. Now, a lot of the Gospels, uh, scriptural programs, or statements of faith or whatever, that we looked at included some of the verses from in here, like verse 12 or whatever, but very few of them included the counterpoint to that, which was in the very same scripture. And I just happen to think that's kind of a dishonest thing to do. Now, I understand you got to cut context off someplace or you just start in Genesis 1 and finish up in Revelation 21 every time you try to talk about the Scripture. But some context really do need to be acknowledged. 
They really do. And, and uh, so this is uh, an effort to do that. Um, and yeah, again, this could be summarized in your words any way you want. It could be summarized down that uh, through one man, sin, fear, and death, and shame came into the world. And through one man, he became that and lifted it off people. It could be that simple. You know? And we did talk about last week how, um, how we want to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. So on these little notes, I took the liberty of making a little color note. So on the first page, there's a thing here that in the title, it says the scriptural meta-narrative foundation for Joylands. But then I put in parentheses yours. And on the, the third, in, bottom of the third page, which is these things with all the scripture references, it says, it gives you some steps. And this is just to try to help you understand what I think the value of this is. Step one is become familiar with these and other scriptures as your gospel meta-narrative. It's the red part down here. Step two, use your own words to summarize their story as you share the gospel. And step three is the essential one. Trust Holy Spirit to guide and use your preparation to help someone receive and believe in Jesus. Come to know God as Father and rediscover their own gift. Uh, uh, rediscover their own gift or power to grow as much as a much-loved child. So again, we'll get into the idea of what the gospel's about. But this is, feel the liberty to make this yours. Okay, so that's sin and darkness. Point three is in Father's eternal love for his children, Jesus was his plan of restoration from before time. And so from Isaiah 53, which I've never heard used in a gospel presentation, but I don't understand why, because it's beautiful. Jesus was sent. He grew up before us. We didn't recognize him. We misunderstood his suffering. Yet he redeemed every area of our lives affected by darkness and sin. He carried our sickness and was wounded for our crimes. We all strayed like sheep, and the Father God let our crimes come down on him. Now, that's pretty much just a sort of a paraphrase of Isaiah 53. I could definitely understand it if you didn't think that Isaiah 53 was something necessary to include in the flow of the gospel. Because there's other places we're going to see that, that Jesus died and all this kind of stuff. But the thing I liked about it, and one of the reasons I put it in there, was Dave and Teresa were here, and Dave said, well, we need some Old Testament, because there's, and it's true, there's a lot of neat stuff. We're really going to see that point before I close tonight. But uh, so... What I, want to, what I want us to understand is that we have permission to receive revelation from the Scripture. And we, it doesn't just have to be the Roman road. It doesn't just have to be a couple of New Testament Scriptures or, or paths like that. So is this necessary? I don't know. I kind of like the thought of it, really, because it, it totally... The little phrase in there, we misunderstood his suffering, is one of my favorites. And that's what it says in Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. Depending on the translation, then it says, but, or yet, he wasn't smitten by God. And one of the atrocities of most of Western evangelicals telling of the gospel is it pits the father's interest against the son's. And it makes the, the father, ultimately what it does is it makes us get saved from the Father by the Son. And I can't think of anything less true and more damaging to the psyche of somebody who you're trying to get to come to the Lord to think that if not for the intervention of Jesus, the Father would have taken delight 
in destroying you. And then we say, so get up in his lap. That's crazy. Okay. Back on safer ground. Uh, God did not send his son out of anger. God did not send his son out of anger. He sent him from a love that did not falter. He kept loving the whole cosmos, including you and me, so consistently that when the time was right, he sent his son Jesus into the very darkness that sin caused among men, not to judge us for our sin, because sin and darkness is its own judgment, but so that we might be saved through him. Now, the truth of the matter is, I think mine is way less powerful than just the basic scripture, for God so loved the world, the whole world, that he sent his only begotten son, and he didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. That is a message that is unfortunately lost on a lot of church people's ears because they have to put that judgment someplace and they lay it at the feet of the Father. And again, I don't know if we really understand the damage we do when we allow that to come out in the way we talk about what happened on the cross and all this kind of stuff. So the fourth point is... Uh, We receive and believe in Jesus to be empowered to become the children God already knows us to be. Now, this is a little pet peeve of mine. It comes out of the, in part, from from John chapter 1 there. Father God sent Jesus, his son, and our creator, reinforces that idea, to share his life with the men and women who had become a kind of living dead. And I know that's a little dramatic sounding, but I don't know. You know, a lot of people we're going to witness to may watch The Walking Dead at some point in their life, and they'll have an image of what's going on there. While we didn't, uh, did not fully understand or recognize him, his life became light in our darkness. Now, that statement is what I was referring to when I said we probably don't really need Isaiah 53 in there to say that, but sometimes it might help to have... And mostly it's not a matter of us telling somebody else that. It's you and your heart realizing, realizing, the truth of this, that God did not, the, nothing about the gospel is a revenge thing. Nothing about the gospel is a manifestation of a father's anger towards wayward children. We got another place where that gets emphasized a little bit. Uh, but it says, while we did not fully understand or recognize him, his life became light in our darkness. When we receive him and believe in him, we once again have the power to be the children of our father God we were predestined to be from the beginning. I personally think this is a super important message for people to know that are are being drawn back to God. He's not here for you to overcome something. He's waiting with open arms. That makes me think about the prodigal son story, and I've got that in. That was one of the two scriptures that I added in as we went on. So at some point, one of the questions that we had is, so what... How do we ask somebody to get saved? If God's not angry and there's, you know, and, and, and if everything's not about judicial judgment and everything's not about uh, repentance that is 100% just emotional trauma, but it's a change of mind, how do we do it? So we're invited to know and to believe the love God has demonstrated for us by sending Jesus. In believing and confessing Jesus is Lord, we confess our belief that God is love and love cast out our fear of punishment and final judgment. I think this is a beautiful gospel scripture out of 1 John. We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. That's what we're talking to somebody about. We want you to come to know this, and we want you to hang in it long enough to believe it, that God loves you. 
And he showed that love by sending Jesus. So that's out of 1 John 4. Here's the, the other sort of formula kind of belief and know. Look inside your heart. The Holy Spirit is with you, giving you belief about Jesus in your heart and words in your mouth. The belief in your heart brings you to the righteousness that Father God has given you in Jesus. The belief you speak with your mouth when you confess and call on Jesus as Lord results in the salvation you receive in Him. Whoever, that can be you, believes in Jesus will not be disappointed. And whoever, that can be you too, calls on Jesus as Lord will be saved. So again, this is a, I don't know how to evaluate the value of of my paraphrasing or summary statement pulled out of Romans. But one thing that I did notice as I was creating it is the theme of disappointment or no disappointment. When is the last time that you talked to a Christian, a young Christian, who was told and and grew confident that they weren't going to disappoint God and they weren't going to be disappointed by God? I think it's a terrible curse. I think think the idea, the, the fear of disappointing God and the fear of God letting us down and disappointing us is something that the enemy works hard to sow into our lives. And there's a lot of evidence in, in you know, life and circles and stuff. So I think that might be worth doing. And again, that's one that I don't know. Um, the other thing that I liked about this, though, is it brings the Holy Spirit into the gospel in a role that I believe the Holy Spirit plays. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But then he immediately explained what he meant and what the Holy Spirit was going to do. Of sin because they don't believe in me. Not of sin because you did this or you did that or you did this. Now I know it almost sounds sacrilegious or heretical or dangerous or something to say that that's not the nature of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't say it if Jesus hadn't been so plain about it. He said, he's going to convict you of sin because you don't believe in me. And believing in Jesus is one of the points of the gospel, right? So anyway, I I think that's important. I like the way this introduces the Holy Spirit in this situation. So our last point of our little scriptural foundation is what makes this beautiful free gift of repentance and restoration possible for you today? Now, I don't know what you think of if you think of a question like that in association with the gospel, but it's usually... Jesus died for our sins. Or uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And it's all true. I mean, it's a good, that's the, the truth. But I wanted to, to cast it in the light. So I'm thinking of talking to somebody. I wanted to cast it in the light that God's on your side in this exchange. He's not an unwilling partner standing back waiting for you to get just the right prayer out or just the right degree of repentance or just the right amount of sorrow. And so I wanted to start with this amazing, if this isn't a gospel passage, there isn't a gospel passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in 17 or so. Um, if anyone's in Christ, he's a brand new creature. Isn't that what we're inviting people to participate in? To become a new creature, to know that they're a new creature? That's how it starts in 17. Then it goes in and, and says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world themselves. So anyway, here's the summary. God has already reconciled you to himself. Now, I will confess, this is a narrative rewrite statement. 
because most people that we know in the church culture that we live in, not our particular church, but just our culture, most people think that this newness and this reconciliation is waiting for your response. But that isn't what the Scripture teaches. It plainly says God was in Christ. This is a past tense thing already for Paul as he's writing it, reconciling the cosmos to himself. And then it goes, not counting their sins against him. I believe that one of the reasons evangelism stalls as much as it stalls in our culture is because we leave the need for reconciliation as a, uh, as a, as a present need. Uh, Dan talked a lot when he wrote his book about grace and forgiveness that forgiveness is still viewed, no matter what our doctrinal statement is, as something pending and conditional upon our confession. But what Paul seems to say clearly is that he's uh, calling you to be reconciled. So my statement is he's calling you to be reconciled. He isn't counting your sins against you. That is a meta narrative rewrite assertion. I think we should, I know for me, I want to keep saying that over and over because I don't want to let those old thoughts come back in. Now why? I'm not trying to invent a new gospel. I understand that there's a threat uh, uh, of the possibility of preaching another gospel, you know, and nobody that ever threatens you with that thinks that they're the ones that might be preaching another gospel. They think you're the one preaching another gospel. So I'm conscious of this, but intrinsic to the gospel, both in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in Hebrews chapter 8 in the statement of the new covenant, is that God is not counting our sins against us. Somehow that has to be given meaning in our lives. Otherwise, we're going to constantly be trying to account for those sins to somehow gain something with him. And we're going to be missing the point. So God's already reconciled you to himself. Now he's calling you back to be reconciled, uh, reconciled to him. He isn't counting your sins against you. He's asking you to believe that Jesus was made sin for you so that you can become God's own righteousness in him. Now is the right time to be reconciled to your heavenly father. I believe that we don't have to have special revelation or prophetic insight to say that. I believe that now is, in fact, the right time to be reconciled. Because God was in Christ and he sent that message out. So the next one is, is so these were the two scriptures that uh, I talked to a few of you and, and I well agreed. Not, I, I added the Luke one, but they added the Second Corinthians one as well. So the story from the, the prodigal son is amazing. Here's the summary statement about it. You guys all know it. We often identify ourselves by our failure and foolish choices, by our sins. But our Heavenly Father has never lost sight of who you are. You're his much-loved child. Return to him and experience the joy of his welcome embrace. You guys can see how that's a little bit of a summary of the prodigal son's story. The son, it says, came to himself. And then he said, well, even the, the servants in my father's house have more to eat. He was out there starving. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to say. But then the point of the story, one of them anyway, 
was that the father didn't let him say that because that's not how he was thinking of it. He did not hold his sins and foolishness against him. Not as a father, not in the embrace, not with a robe, not with a feast. So, why wouldn't somebody who's grown up in a culture where they think God is angry at them, where they're, they've even got enough motivation to consider hearing the gospel, why would you not want to tell them, buddy, the issue here is not that God is wanting to reject you. He's already made room for you. Yes? Yeah. Oh, it is 517. Thank you very much. Yeah, excellent. Did I get it wrong in it's there right too? On here. Okay, I typed it's it wrong, wrong on there. Yeah. Yeah, guys, 517. Sorry, that's like one of the most important scriptures. No, that's great. Thank you. We'll change that on the on the slide. Uh yeah, 517. Perfect. But I don't know that I've ever heard a gospel presentation or an evangelism class or anything along those lines or evangelism Sunday. I don't know that I've ever heard it built around the prodigal son. And most of the time, that leads to the fact that I don't remember ever hearing that the ratio of significance between how stupid you are and how loving God is, is the way it is in that parable. I've heard a lot of abuse on the elder brother, but I've never really heard the simplicity except in a few cases where they said, you know, this really should be called the loving father, the parable of the loving father, because it's much more that than it is the specifics of the two brothers, although they play a factor in it. So, uh, excellent, thanks. And then the last one, again, I want to get both the intent of God, the purpose of God, and the presence of God in the purpose of the father's heart, in the in the in the the gift of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus and his sacrifice and his presence and in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. I want that to be a part of my gospel telling. So however you want to do that, it's totally fine with me. And this is a super a, a little tiny verse, you know, so it's uh, way shorter than what I wrote. It just says, because you are sons, God set the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's all there is to the verse. But remember, and, and again, I'm trying to loop back to the start of things, the, the Ephesians chapter 1 start. This was God's desire forever. Before he created you. He saw himself as your father. He saw you as a son or daughter. So remember, God thought of himself as your father before he ever created anything in the cosmos through his son Jesus. It is because he knows you are predestined to be a son or daughter in Jesus that he has sent the spirit of his son into your heart to cry with you. Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa God, here I am, your child. And so then the question that comes out of that for me that I want to leave with you is, do you think if a person that you were encountering got to the place in your talking to them about being saved, talking to them about Jesus, where they go, wow, I believe I could say that. Father God, thank you. Thank you, Papa. I'm your child. Is that a legitimate salvation prayer? Or do you think God would go, no, there's a couple points here you missed. (laughs) 
I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think, I think everybody that we were to talk to, I mean, really everybody, if we could have a gentle conversation, would go, well, yeah, God would respond to that. But when you structure it as a doctrine and as a system, you end up putting all kinds of things that are crazy. There's one ministry, very competent guy, wonderful guy, loves Jesus and you know, kicks up a bunch of flack with his peers, but he has like 11 things or seven that have to happen for you to be saved. And so he would probably agree if we were just talking over coffee, but when we got down to the doctrine of it and the teaching of it, he'd go, well, no, no, that's not enough. Not enough. Now, I happen to know it's enough because that's how I got saved. I was listening to Billy Graham and um, didn't have a huge history, had a Bible Belt kind of history. I was listening to Billy Graham preach on TV one night, duck and yard work. And whatever he preached, here's what I heard and what I responded. I went into my bedroom, I had tears rolling down my face, and I said, you paid your life to be my God. And I've acted like I'm in control. I'm sorry. And I fell asleep crying. I woke up the next morning absolutely assured that I was saved. The issue wasn't over the particular sins that I had done or not done. It wasn't over any kind of repentance in that neighborhood. It was a repentance from rejecting his authority as my God and my Savior and my Father. So anyway, okay. Wow, we didn't make it. We had a few distractions earlier. Uh, okay, I am... Yeah, they're, they're going to be all right for a second. So the point of telling the gospel story is the salvation of people. So what is salvation? I do want to get this out, basically. Um, I'm not, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, let's go on real quick. How many here knows um, the word sozo and that it has a broader range of meaning than just saved, right? It's healed, delivered, all that kind of stuff. So we don't need to go there. Uh, in the New Testament, salvation is the second word, and these are very comprehensive, soteria, and it, it means the same thing. Uh, the King James translates it all over the place, but the range is basically the result of being delivered, healed, protected, made whole, and all that kind of stuff. In the Old Testament, yasha and yesha are the two words. Uh, yasha is by far the primary word. And I don't know enough about Hebrew or how to study it to make the next point I'm going to make and we're going to close with. But I'm hoping to have lunch scheduled with Darla next week, and I bet she will know. And I, I am absolutely going to pursue this point with her because I, I believe she's got some wisdom in it for sure. But, so these are what I'm almost universally save talks about. The next word, though, the word for salvation, the primary word for salvation in the Hebrew Old Testament is Yeshua. Now, this freaks me out in a positive way. Because it means that the, the Spirit of God, Yahweh himself, engineered the Hebrew culture, Jewish nation, the history, and the language to constantly associate 
salvation with Yeshua. Now, maybe I'm taking that word too far, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm thinking like every time somebody talked about God delivering them from captivity, delivering them from starvation, delivering them from their enemies, delivering them from their fears, saving them from their fears, every element of salvation was fundamentally proclaimed and proclaiming the name of Yeshua. Now, I I put another slide together that's all super complicated. I won't worry about it. It's to prove all that stuff. We'll talk about it later. But Yahweh, the three-in-one, which we have been blessed to come to understand, and I don't think it's a crime to associate those names, made a point at the heart of Hebrew history and language that he, Yeshua, is salvation. So anyway... Here's one scripture, New Testament scripture, just one of many that could be used, but I think it's so sweet. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And so Zacchaeus comes down, and you know, in the verses prior to this, he says, Lord, uh, Jesus said, I'm going to come to your house. And he says, anybody that I've ripped off, I'm going to pay him back, all this kind of stuff. But look at what Jesus says about this instance. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. And if he was speaking Hebrew, he would have been saying, today Yeshua has come to this house. Because he too, meaning Zacchaeus, is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to Yassad, to save that which was lost. Anyway, we are a part of the eternal plan of the Father. And when before the foundation of the world, he, he determined to have sons that were predestined to to Jesus, okay? Greek name Jesus. We were predestined to be a part of the salvation that had been spoken from time immemorial in the Hebrew language and before the foundation of the world. So anyway, I think it's pretty cool. All right. We need to worship for sure. (laughs) I was going to have time for questions and then things got a little out of hand. Cool. Yeah, sorry guys on Zoom, we didn't get a mic back to him, but basically, no, that's okay. Basically, Tim's, Tim's just recounting, and I want you guys, just like I mentioned at the beginning, something is happening in the kingdom, something has happened in the heavenlies, something is happening in the unity of the body of Christ. Do not surrender any of the promises that God has made to you. Do not. Believe. Believe the gospel and see what happens. Because the gospel is more than just how you get saved. The gospel is the heart of the Father expressed in the Son before time, through time, for all time. And we're beginning to experience the fulfillment of that in a a new way. So, praise God.